0: The average um, general today, I, I, I read, spends about a third of their career in training. Not deployed, but in training. Wow. The average State Department, maybe 5%. And the hard skills training how do we conduct negotiations? How do we practice conducting no, no, uh, negotiations? How do we think about deploying a sanction regime in a real time, in a fast paced environment to create real challenging spaces for people to learn from people who are studying these questions just don't exist for for foreign policy decision makers. Foreign policy making today is a game of hunches and gut instincts. But
1: even though today's median appointee perhaps does not have the cunning of a Risha Liu or Juga Liang, they do have Google Scholar and that should count for something, right? Dan McConney used to be a FSO at the State Department, and then decided to get a poli-sci PhD, and is now trying to make that Google Scholar access count for a whole lot more. His new think tank, FP21, aims to inject more evidence into the policymaking process. Co-hosting today is John Bateman, longtime civil servant in the intelligence community and Pentagon, now at
0: Carnegie. Welcome to China Talk, you two. Great to be here, Jordan. I just need to clarify at the top here before I get uh, accused of of uh, inflating my resume that I'm something closer to a PhD dropout than I am a PhD holder. Uh, <laughs> oh, even yeah, better. Excellent. Even better.
2: Yeah, Dan, um pleasure to have you here and I wanted to ask you a question about uh what evidence-based policymaking really looks like uh today versus, you know, the aspiration that you're trying to create. Um FP21 put out this terrific report in 2020. And you opened by setting a scene and so you wanted to get the readers to imagine an NSC meeting in the National Security Council where participants arrive prepared to defend their policy proposals with robust evidence from history, data, intelligence and social science and the integrity of ideas and rigorous analysis wins out over ideology, watered down recommendations and bureaucratic turf battles. Um, it's a really vivid image and you're kind of helping to differentiate what things could be from maybe the not so great way that things work today or have worked over many years. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how exactly you think that the status quo is today. Um, How does a current NSC meeting work or a lower level interagency meeting? Are people not showing up with history data intelligence? Um, What's leading to uh, the problems that you see today?
0: Yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah, it's hard to characterize the policymaking process in a single status quo uh, point here, which is, I think, part of the problem. Uh, The decision-making process is idiosyncratic. It's driven by personalities. It's um, ad hoc. It depends on the policy environment and the situation, the people in the room. Sometimes it's highly integrated and diverse. Sometimes it's very isolated and stovepiped. Uh, you have very different people with very different backgrounds making decisions in very very different ways Um, I should say a lot of incredibly dedicated intelligent wise capable people who have dedicated their lives to public service so nothing I say here today will be will be trying to undermine the the quality of intent or the dedication of our public servants for whom I have an enormous amount of respect Uh, but this ad hoc process leaves a lot on the table it is often enormously inefficient it often uh is subject to a range of very predictable biases it's very risk averse and when we look out at the foreign policy landscape of my lifetime it's not exactly like we're dominating like we're kicking butt here it feels like things are getting harder the world's getting more complex and the tools that we use to try to solve those problems are getting weaker so where do we want to go I think, uh, you know, that's what we should talk about through this conversation. We should critically analyze this. This should be kind of a a broad based discussion that we're all having across the public policy landscape of how do we make policy better rather than just what should we do in China? Of course, that's vital as well. Um, So I would say just thinking about evidence based policymaking in the broad base is too too complicated. It's too much. So we think about breaking that process down into its components. At the first stage, we think of information collection and knowledge management. How do we get the information that we need available to policymakers? In the second stage, we think about how do we analyze that information? There are really cutting edge, cool tool- tools for extracting insight from complicated, vast amounts of information that exists today. In the third stage, we think about how to make decisions based upon the best available analysis. I think there's, you know, we can dig into each one of these stages, stages and I think we should. But uh, it's really common, I think, that, that the intel world or that policymakers and their staff will conduct a great analysis and it'll kind of be ignored. If, if it doesn't comply with the, the decision makers' priors, if it doesn't support the pre-existing position, then it's, ah, I don't really like this piece of analysis, therefore I'm going to discard it. Well, what, what good is, is great analysis if it's just discarded if it doesn't meet the priors? I think that, off, that, that happens often. Uh, After decisions are made, we should be monitoring and evaluating these policies and learning from what works. We should be tracking against discrete goals, discrete expectations for if we do this policy, we are expecting to see these results. If we don't, that's okay. Failure is common. This is a complicated world and the enemy has a vote, but we should learn from that. We should adjust our policies. We should double down on the ones that are working and many will work. And we should pivot away from those that fail. And then we've got to, in the final stage, push all that learning, all that good process throughout the policy uh, the policy cycle back into the, to the staff. How do we hire the people with the right skills? How do we promote those who are accomplishing real objectives rather than just showing up and filling seats? How do we train for the new skills that we really need in the process?
1: So you
0: often have
1: people say, yeah, diplomacy is an art, not a science. And, you know, we, I don't think we can talk to what's happening in, um, uh, you know, the NSC circuit 2022. But when you read history books of the archives that have come out, it's, it's very pie in the sky. People are making random analogies to things. And what seems to win arguments is not subject to the level of rigor, I guess you would hope, for some of these decisions which, um, you know, have world-shattering consequences.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's, a re- there's a great field of study um, called analogic thinking and all the dangers of of comparing everything to, you know, everything's about Vietnam or everything's about the Gulf War, or everything was about World War II, and uh, how poor of a decision-making framework, how inaccurate that this can be. Um, Yeah, I think that the skill often most valued in the foreign policy world is narrative and storytelling. Telling a good story and having great communications is vital. We, We know that this is about democracy. This is about communicating to the American people. And it's about being able to tell a cohesive, logical story. That's all important. But if narrative gets in the way of hard analytical rigor, if narrative trumps rigor, you get yourself in big trouble. I remember interning decades
1: ago at the State Department, and everyone was like, Jordan, you're a really good writer. You'd be great here. And I was just thinking, like, really? Like, writing is what gets me great? You can be a great writer and have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but the mm. fact that, like, the, these cables, like, the ones that get passed around are the ones that have, like, the juicy, like, journalist-sticky goodies, not the ones that have very interesting kind of like, you know, real, uh, you know, grease and legwork and, and kind of rigor into them um, was, was, a, was a lesson that I've
0: not, I've not lost in the, in the subsequent decade. Yeah, I think that's right. Foreign policy decision makers tend to be excellent writers and excellent briefers. Gosh, I learned so much at the State Department from really great briefers who just, na- you know, I've got 30 seconds with the boss and I'm going to nail the point. Often the best analysts are terrible briefers. It's like, well, you know, there are shades of gray. There's this and that. There's, you know, we've got to weigh this evidence. I'm not sure about this piece. 60% probability on this piece. That makes terrible briefing. It makes terrible writing. It just so happens to make really great decision-making and analysis, unfortunately. Is that your experience? You've served at at high levels, John.
2: Well, I I don't want to say high levels, but whatever level I was at, I experienced all of the issues that you described, Dan. Um, I mean, starting in the intelligence community, I'm somewhat embarrassed at times to kind of um, uh, pitch myself as an expert on the things that I was supposedly analyzing in the IC, um, not because the quality of the analysis was was poor. We were able to do a decent job institutionally, but you know, any one of us really lacked access to the kind of thick expertise that exists in academia and civil society on the ground. Um, it was definitely... Through a looking glass darkly. And as you describe, all of that trickles upward into senior level meetings, which may lack structure and um, just go based on the, the predilections of, of those principles. So maybe one question is, if all of us who have served in the government are so painfully aware of these problems, what are institutions or organizations now or in other places or times in history that have done this well? I mean, because sometimes you just hear the claim that you know, human beings need stories or there's there's limits to the complexity of our thought. The politics that you describe are just perennial problems in human decision making. So, you know, should we be grading on a curve or can the U.S. government actually be looking to paragons of rationality in the business community
0: and are there foreign governments who have done this well other governments historically who've done this well i don't think that the best comparisons are going to come out of the uh, other other spaces within the world of foreign policy instead my inspiration lies in other fields that have evolved from this is an art not a science like medicine if you look back at doctors You know, you think of George Washington's doctors uh, bloodletting him to to get all the bad blood out of him. They were highly respected individuals. They were highly experienced. They were very wise, very dedicated, very well-intentioned, but they weren't bringing scientific approaches to their practices. Uh, There was kind of an evolution. The story of evolution in medicine is actually a really interesting one that's that's worth learning from about some folks who came in and said, hey, listen, there's this tool called experimentation. We can collect evidence along the way. We can still have real debates about when this tool applies versus this tool. There are hard choice. There are hard ethical choices to make in medicine. God, you know, God knows this COVID debate has exposed. There are limits to how much science can tell you about how to manage politics and public policy, as there should be in a democracy. We're not trying to run like a, a, a technocracy here. I don't believe in that. But evidence in other spaces, epidemiology, uh, the financial world, even sports. I mean, everybody loves loves talking about the uh, the money ball example from the Oakland A's. That's just ubiquitous across all sports these days. That Um, you know, Michael Jordan didn't study statistics, you know, that, that's, that's okay. You can be really great at this stuff without being, but you can't be, you can't be a GM without, um, without, without, without
1: having a halfway decent way to evaluate talent. And that's right. And, you know, coming back to something you raised earlier, Dan, about sort of hiring practices, like when's the last time the foreign service
0: has changed them? Like 20 years ago, something like that. Yeah, there are small tweaks along the way. But really, the I, th- I think this question of expertise is really vital and really juicy. It's a question that I ask often to senior decision makers and, and to myself. It's It's a topic of my research in this organization and my dissertation before. This is, what does it mean to be an expert in foreign policy? What is the stuff of the expertise? How do we really know this tool is going to work versus this tool? What are we trying to measure for? And I don't think we have great answers to that. Yeah, we need cultural understanding we need to speak the language we need to have a feel for places and strategy Mm -hmm. and politics we need to have read a lot of history that's all good but just being wikipedia doesn't make you a good decision maker there's there's other there's other stuff in there and i think that that's what we need to build in this world Mm -hmm. yeah takes me
2: back to my time in the pentagon one of the things that we looked at hard was professional military education how do you create a senior four-star commander who ultimately has some kind of creative, strategic sensibility allows them to look over the horizon, deal with the complexities of the political world, civil mill relations, foreign societies. Um, it's a huge puzzle, and a lot of senior people in the military think that we haven't cracked it. Uh, I wanted to follow up on this sports analogy because I think it's, it's kind of revealing maybe in both ways. It does seem like foreign relations is a lot like sports in that it's a competitive landscape, right? So if you're not doing Moneyball and some other country is doing Moneyball, you could quickly fall behind. Um, But then on the other hand, the data in sports is so rich, so accessible, so clear and objective. Everyone can just directly observe everything on the field and you're kind of, the rules of the game aren't changing. Um, Whereas a lot of the decisions in foreign policy that seem hard or important, it's not clear whether they have neat historical precedents, um, or maybe a lot of what evidence-based policy involves is arguing about which precedents are relevant and which precedents aren't. Um, so I wanted to get your take on what, how to tackle this kind of end problem in evidence-based foreign policy. Can we ever have enough evidence to make the kinds of unique precedent-setting decisions that a president or a prime minister needs to make as the world is constantly evolving
0: yeah that's that's i think the right question and the, the hardest question here in some respects but let's take it apart having a piece of evidence delivered to the president on should i go to war in this situation isn't really what we're talking about here what you need to think of is an entire process all the little decisions that are made to contribute to these big decisions and how we're holding ourselves accountable for The quality of analysis and the efficacy of our decisions at each stage of that of that kind of bigger decision making process. So first piece, do we have the information available? Do we have data available? Uh, There is enormous, enormous, enormous amounts of data out there of information out there. Data isn't just numbers. It's also qualitative information. Data comes in all shapes and sizes and forms. Uh, We just don't prioritize it at the Department of State, the, the building I know best. There's essentially up until, you know, like there's a few new data driven efforts, but there's essentially no data. People are innumerate. They do not deal with numbers. They don't engage on data building. We don't invest in creating sources of data. And if we start thinking about where are there places of data throughout this organization, and how do we use this data to start bringing better analytical decision-making to bear on those spaces, I think you were going to start discovering a lot. So let's think of some examples. We meet with the same people over and over and over again in different places and ask things of them. Do they respond affirmatively? Do they respond negatively? Do they change their policies in response to our asks? At what level do we ask? Is this a presidential visit or a low-level delivery of a demarche? Is this a military thing or a, a State Department thing? So when you start thinking about gathering data throughout the organization it's going to give you the resources you need for better analytical decision making i remember a while ago kind of looking
1: at maybe maybe 10 years ago looking at this and there was like gary Huffbauer had a data set at um at the peterson institute and he would like kind of count which ones worked and which ones didn't uh, now it's now it's now it's 2022 um sanctions are the premier uh you know, American tool of foreign policy. We've like, you know, with uh with, with Iran and Russia, we've done this twice now of basically like cutting a country off from the world. And we still have Gary Huffbauer like managing his data set. Uh the fact that uh no one has invested no one in the government has invested the time and effort to 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 do a little more uh put a little more uh, money and elbow grease behind this sort of uh thinking of 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 what happens to um, to nations uh, and their decision-making when they get
0: sanctioned uh, is, is, is really shocking. I think that that's the right way to think about where to find these resources of information. Repeated processes, sanctions, peace process negotiations, ceasefires, arms deals, trade agreements, diplomatic engagements. These spaces, yeah. the military would make doctrine around each of these pieces. They would say, here's our best practice. Here's how we're going to execute it. We've had all these generals and all these folks over at the war colleges studying these processes, thinking about how this fits together with the broader institution, how this tool supports our larger you know, project that we're building, and uh, they create doctrine out of it. Okay, pluses and minuses of, of all doctrine, uh, but the State Department has essentially no doctrine. There's no official place to even go read about where's sanction best practice, how should we start a mediation or negotiation? What's the best timing for this? What are some past case studies that show success and failure? It just doesn't. Re- it's just not how the foreign policy decision-making structure works. You just fall back on, okay, we've got a new official here and what does that official think? What does their team think? And let's go from there. And that's, that's a recipe for trouble.
2: Dan, I saw you recently published a piece calling for the creation of an FFRDC, or for those who don't know, a federally funded research and development center that could support uh, diplomatic assessments for the State Department. Um, I think it's a really interesting, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why you're making that Uh, recommendation, Um, I've been involved in some work at Carnegie on a very different set of issues where we also came up with almost the exact same recommendation that we need to create new FFRDCs or FFRDC-like organizations. These are places like uh, RAND or IDA or the Center for Naval Analyses that are very respected government-linked research organizations that were established in the mid-20th century and are seen as highly successful. What do you think it is about these organizations that made them so successful? And why is it that so many of us today looking at different policy problems are finding ourselves yearning for more FFRDCs? What what does that tell us um, about the state of things and the kind of conditions that might be needed for an organization like that?
0: I've heard policymakers talk about that they when they go into government particularly political appointees when they go into government it's a time to expend the intellectual capital that they've already collected rather than a, a time and a place to build new intellectual capital so as mm. we go in this fast moving fa- rapidly changing world that we're in today as we go into new spaces confront new challenges quantum computing cybersecurity, cyber cyber de- deterrence lots of things yeah and uh, technology, exclamation point, um, then we're, we're looking for people to help us, we want to understand not just what's this, what's an explanation of what a blockchain is, but how do I create policy to regulate this new instrument that I don't understand. Those types of questions require real collaboration between the decision maker and Researchers and back-end support. This isn't quite what the Intel community does usually, though. Though in some places, it sometimes I think so, uh, but rather wanting somebody to really sit, pour through the record, spend six months, bring together disparate sources of knowledge in multidisciplinary ways, in in, in a way that really connects to the levers that the policymaker can pull. Not just to say, yeah, okay, we get it. Blockchain is really important or quantum computing is going to be really important, but okay, but what do I do about it? What are the levels, the levers that I can pull and how is it going to work likely if I pull this lever, if I try to go bilaterally versus multilaterally, if I try to put sanctions on this issue versus we bring it into government and we, you know, we go big on blockchain ourselves. Uh, so I think that those questions um, in a fast-moving world need uh, yeah, need re- real analysis to support policymaker decision making.
1: Has anyone, has anyone proposed the uh, the West Point for foreign service officers?
0: Working on that now. That you'll stay stay, stay tuned. Seriously, yeah. We uh, right. So, just a quick review on the FFRDC piece. The Department of Defense has ten FFRDCs. Foreign policy writ large, this includes USAID and State Department and the National Security Council have zero. So it's just not there's just not sources that of researchers with access to policymakers and access to classified information who are studying these issues. Very similar situation in the training and research space from a university perspective. Uh, I've spent a good, you know, good years at the Foreign Service Institute where diplomats are trained. Uh, I learned to speak um, the wonderful language of Lithuanian there and took maybe about three months of consular training and general skill building before I became a diplomat. Uh, The average military officer, John, you were talking about uh, military training before, um, sure haven't like totally cracked that nut, but the average um, general today I I read uh, spends about a third of their career in training, not deployed, but in training. The average State Department, maybe 5%. And those, the hard skills training, how do we conduct negotiations? How do we practice conducting uh, um, negotiations? How do we think about deploying a sanction regime in a real time in a fast paced environment to create real challenging spaces for people to learn from people who are studying these questions just don't exist for for foreign policy decision makers. So, uh, Perhaps the State Department should have something like a war college or to upgrade the Foreign Service Institute with a real curriculum that would teach kind of core decision-making analytical methods and then get into the weeds on some of these uh, some of these more specific issue areas. I, I think that'd be really exciting and really helpful. It's something that a lot of other countries have. It's interesting
2: that, you know, it's not uncommon for folks in other parts of the national security establishment to actually spend some time at a DOD educational institution just because that's that's what's there in some sense. Um But yeah, Dan, I mean, it it brings to mind a couple perennial challenges that I know DOD has struggled with in military education, which is on the one hand, um, distinguishing between training and education, right? Training meaning um, learning a task that you can perform kind of by rote through a set of rules and conditions um, versus what we might think of as education, which is, you know, critical thinking skills, learning how to do things that you haven't done before, maybe no one has done before. um, And... Is it even possible to have a military education institution that can do that in the same way that the civilian world can? The
1: key point is that every diplomat thinks that absolutely everything they do is only education relevant, not training relevant. But in fact, what Dan is trying to do is make the point that no, like we are doing things over and over and over again, and um, you know there is an act, uh, an aspect of this, like where you can have a little bit more of a checklist. Um, and, you know, there are regressionable parts of
0: uh, this job in the way the U.S. engages with the world. Yeah, I think that's a good division. And, you know, this is the type of expertise when I, when I speak with somebody like you, John, who's, who's been in the thick of it from a different institution where I say, gosh, I would love for this debate to play out at the Department of State. Uh, I just don't know if it's happening right now there. And, uh, you know, that's why, that's why FP 21 exists, to, to have these conversations and to try to learn best practices and, and push the field forward. You know, this is what we want. We want to advance, we want to innovate, we want to get better and smarter at our jobs to, you know, to, to make a more peaceful world, to accomplish our U.S. national security objectives.
2: When I was in the IC there was a certain amount of training focused on critical analysis. And, you know, we'd learn things like structured analytic techniques, right? How to do hypothesis testing, uh, team A, team B. Um, you know, what if scenarios, right? Um, Then on the other hand, when I went to the office of the Secretary of Defense and was actually staffing memos for decision, there was nothing like that. There was no template. Um, One of the things I loved about your report, Dan, is you have a model action officer, um, action memo to the Secretary of State, where you actually have fields in there where a diplomat would have to say things like, what is the goal? What is the theory of change? Assign probabilities, risks explain all of that. If you actually go and look at the official DOD action memo template, it just says, <laughs> state the bottom line up front, put in relevant information. Exactly, it, it's
0: it's all, it's, it's kind of- That's right on. Yeah, this is something we're really excited about. People ask me, if you could do one thing at the Department of State or the NSC, have one of your recommendations adopted, what would it be? Uh, this is it. I would say, as a starting point, let's just upgrade the memo, the, the lowly, humble memo. Let's just make it a little bit more juicy. Ask for—I think you said it all right, John. Ask for the uh, the source of your an- analysis. Cite your sources. Let's have a, a space within that memo to give policymakers some insight on where this idea came from. What are some of the alternatives? State your goals clearly. This is one of my favorite parts. Break your goal down into its causal components, into the mechanisms. Okay, we wanna. Democratize Cuba. So we're doing this new policy. It's called democracy Cuba. And we're going to, you know, we're going to do these radio radio station, something, something, something. Okay, great. That's like a nice fairy tale, a nice story. You just told me, walk me through the steps that we're going to see if this policy is working. Tell me how we're going to monitor how this policy is working within the memo itself. First, we're going to do this. Then a thousand people are going to fall in love with our radio ads Mm -hmm. and want to take action. And we think 10% of them are going to run for office and we're going to support them when they do. That gives you, uh, there's like one of my favorite lines about diplomacy is that diplomacy is the art of telling somebody to like go to hell uh, and have them say, thank you. That that same rhetorical talent, I think is often kind of bleeds into goal setting itself Mm. of, making claims that can't be disproven if you can't disprove the goal of the memo we're going to push back against russia we're going to democratize cuba if it's if it's kind of ambiguous if it sounds right if it feels right but it's too ambiguous to actually measure it's probably a really bad goal it's probably not going to be something we're going to accomplish and that policy memo is probably going to initiate a procedure which is going to live forever and no one's going to be able to kill it because nobody's ever discussed what failure looks like up front so if we create a different structure, a different process, we can start to reshape the way that we engage in the policy process itself.
2: So Dan, at some point, all these action memos and intelligence analyses, they make their way to a senior decision maker, a cabinet official, a president, um, somebody who, you know, is going to bring their own priors, their own political constraints. And I want to get your sense of How to what degree can we fix US foreign policy through this bottom up um, refinement of the bureaucracy um, versus how many of our foreign policy problems are ultimately coming from the top down? They're coming from inside the house. They're coming from the president, the senior officials who have their own personal styles, their own compunctions.
0: Yeah, it's gotta be both. There's there's some pretty good research on the business world that take up new analytic shops in their office. And I think this is kind of illustrative. There's one model of business kind of at the dawn of the data revolution that created all these offices of analytics, but buried them somewhere within their organization. And so the CEO, the C-suite would get recommendations from the office of analysis. They'd get recommendations from like the old marketing guys. They'd get recommendations from the product team. And then the, you know, the CEO would kind of scratch, his his beard, or or uh, you know probably probably back then it was a him, uh, and say well you know I like this one but I don't like this one as much so you know better analysis that's going to be pushed through the same old decision making heuristic isn't really going to improve anything and 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 the evidence shows that organizations that adopted that model actually showed zero improvement in profits. Uh, the alternative is when you embed this decision making process mm. in the C suite or throughout the organization. You have decision makers participate in asking questions about the quality of the evidence, the quality of the analysis, present options, in a little bit more of a scientific process. Let's present these ideas as hypotheses, and then test with the best available evidence. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be right answers or silver bullets. Oh, this is it. This is how we're going to win. That's not going to exist. This is going to be managing deep sources of uncertainty. But we do our best to evaluate all of the options and when processes are embedded like that, uh, the organizations took off and had much more profit, much more success. So I think we need the same model. We need decision makers that are bought into engaging a, a different form of, of decision making culture that needs to come from the top. It's not going to happen without leadership, but we also need the bureaucracies to perform, you know, the people kind of in, in, the, in the heart of these institutions to do their work a little bit different at every stage of the process to, to support better decision-making at the top.
2: And I, I maybe one thought is we as bureaucrats and policy professionals, we can't control who's running the government. We might get a very curious, uh, evidence-oriented person, or we might get a total blowhard who is just going to fly by the seat of their pants but maybe we can create a decision-making edifice that um, if we do get the right president, the right cabinet official, at least they're able to do
3: that.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly (laughs) right, John. I I don't think we want to challenge democracy here. You know, political elected officials should be given the opportunity to implement their agenda. What the bureaucracy does, the reason for it being started in the first place, its contribution is to provide the best process, the best advice, and in many situations, create some guardrails. Think of, you know, like the depths of the COVID debate or any other of your favorite policy situations. Uh, Can the scientists explicitly with their, you know, their academic reports, tell the government how to act? No, we don't want it that way. Can they inform and shape the public debate in a really productive manner when they exist? Yes. I don't see that same push and pull in the space of foreign policy between science and politics. It feels kind of like pretty deeply all politics. And indeed, when I look at my you know my beloved State Department, and I see political appointees burrowing deeper and deeper into the into the organization, folks who yeah. haven't participated in the foreign policy process, I say, well, yeah, you know, I, if like if anybody can do this, then I guess anybody can do it. So sure.
2: Maybe we, just thinking about the Trump administration as like the nadir of evidence based policymaking, even in that administration, there were cases where kind of more evidence based parts of the government, um, just through their existence, exerted some constraint or a political constraint on the administration, like when it became known that uh, political appointees were um, editing climate documents. Um, or when there was the inspector general investigations of the intelligence community and potential politicization of analysis. So there can be some guardrail
0: effect. Yeah, there. there's a lot of research on that. And also, I don't want to make this issue partisan. The Trump administration also um, had Tillerson and Pompeo, who both invested at the State Department in creating more analytical prowess. Pompeo started the the Center for Analytics. Uh, they, both of those secretaries of state tried to create new procedures for bringing data. And information and evidence into the hands of decision-makers the uh, one of my favorite pieces of congressional legislation the um, the foundations for evidence-based policymaking Act of 2018 was a bipartisan Ooh. piece of legislation look it up it's really brilliant they're telling the government we should use evidence we should use. we want to be efficient we want to be effective this isn't about politics are there going to be headline political partisan issues that we get to yell about until we're blue in the face of course i hope so you know like this is this is like the best of a democracy is that we get to yell at each other are there the vast majority of other decisions where people are just trying to like you know pick up trash and, and make the buses run on time and prevent us from dropping nuclear bombs on each other's heads yeah i think we're, you know like we're mostly driving in the same direction here so FP 21 why
1: a new organization how have you tried to structure it To answer this problem
0: yeah so when i was in government i've got this like i've got this thing i want to be effective you know i i want to be a a positive public servant i was starting to ask a lot of these pesky questions like a like a you know like a four-year-old of like why like what why why ma'am why are we doing this like why is this going to work and um so i kind of like had to step back away from government dug into the academic world And uh, went looking for another organization that was doing this sort of process, wonky, unsexy work and couldn't really find one. There are places that pop up on the radar that focus on State Department reform for discrete time periods. There's some really great reports out there that have been produced by a lot of different organizations on how to reform this or that. That's cool. No permanent structures dedicated to this particularly in kind of the civilian foreign policy space. There's a little bit more on the DoD front, as I mentioned, you know, as we talked about these FFRDCs in particular. So uh, we found kind of a gap. And uh, I found a lot of folks as I started talking about this, former Foreign Service officers. I was out in California, and man, there are so many retired State Department or resigned State Department folks out there who are now like doing their Google, Facebook, Twitter thing, who say like, wow you know like the tools of decision making we use in these companies just are are like laughably more advanced than what we faced in government and that's crazy and they f- still feel like they want to push things to make things better so kind of like a group coalesced around this idea and push it forward and we've had a lot of success and uh among folks who who yeah who want to believe who want to believe that there's a better way to do this
1: so who let's let's do like a like a most to least receptive list of all of the stakeholders that matter for these sorts of questions? Yeah. Uh,
0: I would say most receptive are there's a certain type of civil and foreign service um, official at the Department of State. I don't want to make this generational, but often that's a nice heuristic who have grown up with technology, who appreciate that things move very fast, who are very used to hunting very quickly through highly complex information environments, who, who kind of slam into the realities of the bureaucracy. And all the information resources that, that, that they've gathered don't quite seem useful anymore. They're not asked to, to really support great policy. They're not held accountable for, for being successful in their policies. And I think that they get really frustrated. Uh, And I think these these are some of the best, the most talented foreign service officers and civil service officers and and, and policymakers who want to solve problems. They want to bring new approaches to bear. They're often, you know, innovative. Maybe they're like a little bit different than than the rest of us. And uh, so we've had a lot of success with kind of that crew. Bigger challenge has been the highest level folks. We haven't really spent a lot of time trying to proselytize at this stage of our organization. We've only been around for a couple of years. Um, But the most senior diplomats, uh, not all of them, but more often are really distrustful of the word data. When even we say evidence, they start thinking data and they very quickly say, oh, no, no, no. Data cannot describe what I do. There is no way to measure what I do. They have these antibodies against and I'm not exactly sure where they come where this comes from. I think it's partly just a a risk aversion, a conservatism that that is like baked into institutions
1: yeah i, I mean it, it's just like the it's just like the M, the the MLB scouts who like prefer looking at you know nineteen year olds' butts as opposed to their throw velocities like <laughs> or or doctors i mean dan what what
2: you're describing is four square as you know that the journey of so-called evidence based medicine where many doctors will say. You know, data cannot dis- um, replace my judgment as yeah. a physician.
0: And in some in some respects, they're, they're right. They're absolutely right. And we're not trying to replace human decision makers with robots. That's that's crazy. But the the kind of the antibodies have grown so strong that they're that they're kind of holding the door closed against processes that are going to help them be more effective in their job. So that's the argument that I try to make. Is listen, this is about making you. This is about empowering you to achieve your objectives, to ensure that you're being more efficient, to ensure that your staff isn't wasting enormous amounts of time hunting for factoids when you can kind of create better processes and and leverage technology to to provide that information at your fingertips or uh, avoid you kind of stumbling blindly into a disaster here. Foreign policy is, in in my estimation, one of the last great apprentice models in our professional world today. That you really can't get ahead uh, unless somebody walks you into that decision-making room you can't outcompete. you can't uh um y- yeah you can't like win on your own in the foreign policy space that's just not how it works there's no market economy for foreign policy and uh it's still kind of an up or out system within within this world so um i think that's a challenge to to change that we need to overcome yeah and it's
1: it it my my bet is this is probably A generational thing not a okay you get the bill through and then like the organization changes on a dime and it's a shame because the people with the 25 years of experience are the ones who actually would probably benefit the most and have the most to contribute that's right um to bringing um bringing kind of more rigor into into the way they're decision making because they can Contextualize and you know use all of their muscle memory um, as a as an addition, not as not and uh, and kind of bring those two together,
0: as opposed to having it be set in uh, in uh, in contrast. That's exactly right. If we don't have these lessons written down now, they're the ones who own them. They're the ones who hold them, and we need to we need to benefit from their wisdom that they've gained over the years and and share that and propagate it and have people study it and learn from it, uh, not just read case studies of what they did in the past and somehow glean from a case study oh, okay, this is, you know, Kissinger did this, therefore, you know, therefore I know how to, I know how to manage world affairs. Uh, I just don't think that learning happens like that.
1: So Dan, what are you doing when someone listens to this podcast and 10x is your funding?
0: Yeah, well, I think that there's, there's two, there's two big processes that we want to get right. First is uh, we, I think in many situations, in many cases, for the first time are bringing together best practice across the range of issues that we've been discussing in the policy process. So we wanna hire really great, smart researchers, people who, who have deep, intimate understanding with the bureaucracies in which we're engaging, also have engaged, you know, we're, we're hiring PhDs, we're hiring academics, we're hiring uh, analysts and researchers, um, folks who have, who have you know, spent a lifetime working in cognitive science, thinking about sources of bias, who have advanced analytical tools, who have who have used artificial intelligence, and understand its limits and its dangers, and think of, can think in structured ways about vast stores of information. So we want to bring together really really smart minds to push the field forward and build the the evidence base, kind of the evidence for the evidence. You know, we've got a lot of strongly held beliefs here. We have some evidence to guide us, but you know, I, I would love to be able to create more experimentation of, will this new memo actually create better policy? That, that's a big research question that could you know that, that we would love to be able to spend money on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second piece is how to build a coalition and how to build advocacy and how to build partners. There's a lot of people out there who care about this, high level, mid-level, low level, inside the government, academics, think tankers, intel and analysts, You know, it's what's been crazy in the past in the past some years is all the support for improving civilian civilian foreign policy coming from the Department of Defense, they're saying we need good partners here, we can't do our job effectively, we don't want to be in the the reconstruction space, we don't want to be in the political analysis space trying to figure out which, which village is on our side or another, we need great, smart, capable analytical partners to be able to advance into these spaces. So uh, we think we need to um, uh, invest in building a coalition to, to get this done. There's another like like fun project we're doing is in the experimental space at FP21 called fp 21lab and we're actually building some like tech prototypes, some tools, more of like a, a show don't tell model theory of change. Um, and we have hmm. like computer programmers hacking away on like you know making cool examples of different decision making templates or. Um, one of the spaces I'm, I'm like actually really excited about and think is super interesting is uh, is the field of forecasting and prediction and uh, measurement to reduce uncertainty in spaces and thinking more about um, yeah un- uncertainty in decision making and analysis processes. So I think that that's a space, uh, you know, the folks over at, at Georgetown CSET have been doing some really cool stuff in this space. Uh, I think that there's a lot of gains to be made. We just need to bring it together and then kind of custom fit tools into a department, into a national security council that's resistant to to outside change in many ways. So we just need to make it happen.
2: You know, when I was in the IC, there was a lot of interest in bringing in some of these techniques, whether it's um, uh, crowd forecasting, Mm -hmm. uh, betting markets, wikis, just other kind of digital like aggregation tools, uh, it was pretty immature. And I frankly don't know if it ever really amounted to much. Um, pro- you know, Anyway, just I'm not really sure where I'm going with that.
0: Yeah, the, the IC has innovated on, on a lot of these things. You know, the, the, There's an interesting story told very well by the book, um, Super Forecasters, by one of my favorite professors, Phil mm-hmm. Tetlock, highly recommended. Uh, he started this huge forecasting tournament in collaboration with the Intel community. To, to evaluate in experimental in robust experimental ways, who was the best forecaster, who are the best predictors of future events. And uh, they developed techniques that were consistently outperforming the status quo models by like a lot, an enormous amount and worth, with accuracy uh, and effectiveness that was really impressive. The forecasting tournament died. It, it finished, they published their results. Everybody was kind of wowed by it and uh you know phil tetlock is is still out there kind of proselytizing for these issues and has created a lot of folks who 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 think that his methods are really powerful and important and government just kind of hasn't taken them on yet for for reasons we could probably like pick apart uh you know institutions are, are sticky and hard to change um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try so maybe that's a
2: good jumping off point to ask about um times when in the past when folks have tried to reform bureaucratic processes. Um, I'm thinking about the Iraq War. In the wake of the Iraq War, huge strategic blunder, huge intelligence failure, many policy failures in the conduct of the war, and a lot came out of that. Um, So in the IC, there was improved tradecraft, uh, more highlights of dissenting views, uh, more explicit about assumptions, new kinds of executive summaries, structured analytic techniques. And then the military, the creation of these so-called lessons learned programs throughout the military, tactically, operationally, strategically. um, And then more broadly, a discussion about some of the basic strategic blunders about making sure you have a clearly defined mission, uh, watching for mission creep, understanding the limits of U.S. power. So there was this huge kind of reckoning over the Iraq war um, in all of these different ways. I'm curious if you have a sense of... What did that come to? Um, have past efforts improved matters, or are we still kind of stuck in the same fundamental challenges? And what lessons does that have for today's reformers like FP Twenty One?
0: Yeah, John, this is a it's a brilliant research question. And one when, um, when Jordan's ten uh, X plus funding um, wand is produced, um, we will we will kind of push at right away is what is best practice to reform institutions? There's a lot of different models for how to like create momentum and the infrastructure for reform from congressional commissions and blue ribbon, blue, blue ribbon panels, top-down processes, inclusive processes, kind of like single man or woman driving change, a great leader processes. Uh, and then there's also the content of those um, of those processes? How do we understand really what has been the impact of lessons learned reform or red teaming at the Department of Defense? Uh, has the quality of analysis and, and the impact of that analysis on the policy mo- process improved with upgraded analytical standards? I have a sense that those are all really great things. And my mouth waters when you talk about that for, gosh, why can't we do that at the NSC and the Department of State at a, at a high level? Uh, and, and institutionalize this as kind of fundamental um, to the to the uh, to the decision making process, and, and, and kind of look back and say, God, how did we ever get away with making policy without these things in the first place? Those are the dark ages. Um, I think we can, you know, we can probably produce better answers to that question over time with real research. And there are models, you know, CIA reform. There's, you know, that was in recent years. USA just went through a big modernization that is getting some good uh, good reviews. Um, and there are big ones historically to, to bring together the military services, to create the NSC. There's all these different models of the NSC, and there's always kind of a study with any new presidency of which model of NSC decision-making, mm-hmm. um, depending on kind of presidential type and relationships and all that, is most, ef- most effective. So I think there's big sources of evidence um, to be able to make some of these decisions. I, I, I can't say that I have, like, a great answer yeah. yet, but, you know, we hope to produce that one day. I want
1: to shout out... Uh, very old former employer of mine innovations for successful societies um which is based Ooh. out of princeton university and what they have done over the course of like 20 years is write case studies of bureaucratic reform and um mm. I, th- it's not perfect they kind of read like magazine articles more than like a, like a synthetic or like a synthesized kind of overall take on like what works and what doesn't, but there's some really great stuff in there. Uh, and more people should be reading about how bureaucracies all around the world have changed in
0: ways good and bad. Um, yeah, right. Leadership isn't just about selecting the best China policy or going to deliver the demarche to, the, to the, you know, the new president of Kazakhstan. It's about making your organization better. And I think we need to value that more and celebrate that more. So I, I love that, Jordan. Listening to this conversation,
1: like there was a part of me the whole time where I was just thinking, but but China's the exception. Like it's an N of one and, um, you know, they're communists and like no one else is communist. So you can't really compare them to anyone else. Um, you know, sure. If you're trying to figure out a civil war, like, yeah, there's like eight other civil wars and you can compare them all and, and whatever. Um, but maybe that's just my like, you know, uh, paradigmatic chauvinism. I don't even know. Uh, that is, um, uh, that, that's making me think that. Yeah. I
0: don't know if we're gonna get, you know, we're so immature at this stage. Nobody's gonna produce in the coming, you know, few years, certainly not FP21, like the evidence-based solution to China. Yeah. That you're gonna be like, whoa, mm-hmm. this is it. They've done it, you know, Dan's done it. Uh, though, you know, like, please go read John's report. Uh, on, on, you know, like a component of China policy that I think actually kind of like exposes a lot of the analytical weaknesses that the government ha- has has like has has demonstrated in this specific area of policy. Then add that up across a lot of different issue areas, and maybe you start getting a lot better of a of a relationship and more more discrete focused policy. But the the point of evidence based policy isn't just at the decision making moment. That's why I keep trying to expand the conversation to the whole policy process. Yeah, it's also about okay, we're undertaking a very new challenging endeavor to, to calibrate our relationship to the new big kid on the block and, uh, you know, big, big, big man, big woman on the block. Uh, how do we capture information and lessons along the way, create a record of what's working so that we can help train those who are coming behind us of here's what we've done. Here are all the things we've tried. Here's where we're finding success. Here's where we're finding failure. And to create more conversation about that evidence rather than just, I'm unhappy with the process. Here's how I, you know, here's my gut feeling of what we should do differently in China. That's, it's like always kind of starting from this, from this first principle uh, argument, which, which undermines any ability to create science, to have a more scientific decision-making process in the future. So I think we've got to start somewhere. I think Having metrics, having clear goals, evaluating those goals along the way is uh, is, is something we need to be doing now. Uh, Dan, I
1: want to close talking a little bit about funding. So part of your funding pie comes from the effective altruism community, uh, which seems to mm-hmm. slowly which which has tens of billions of dollars um, of potential funding behind it and seems to slowly be warming to the idea that, um, you know, foreign policy making should take its place alongside the um, uh you know golden oldies of animal rights and um uh, uh, a g i uh what's your sense of how this world is um uh, is uh or how how this world is processing um these sorts of questions
0: yeah um I've been really inspired by the world of effective altruism. They have a heuristic they use to make decisions not just about money and resources but also about our time about how each of us engages as a public servant. In a way to make the world better to make an impact in ways that we care about it you know if if we do care about it and that's uh when we think of a question we think of is this question important how how valuable over the long term uh is this intervention going to going to be how dangerous is it going to be if we get this wrong well if we mess up on nuclear weapons we're all dead okay pretty valuable if we mess up on artificial intelligence And, uh, you know, like the worst scientific uh, science fiction novels come true. uh, That's a really bad situation. We better we better like focus on this stuff. Okay, important. Number one. Number two is tractability. Uh, Is this something we think we can make progress on realistically? How how um, how malleable are the decision makers in this space? How much partisanship is there on this issue already? How locked into positions are folks uh, so we kind of need to evaluate how tractable an issue is. And third, the question is, how neglected is it? If everybody's already focused on this, already thinking about it, and already working on it, uh, maybe it's, a, it's not as good of an investment space as if really we're the only ones doing it in this space. And so if we can be successful, then, you know, we're, we're really going to advance the conversation. So I think that this framework has, uh, has a lot of folks within kind of aligned and within the effective altruism movement who have been um, debating and thinking really hard and bringing a lot of evidence and bringing a lot of research weight uh, to bear on uh, evaluating where we should be spending our time. And yeah, I think a lot of people care deeply about um, the international system and how we can cooperate out of some of the big challenges that we face, how we can avoid some potential disasters along the way that could, you know, quite literally, I mean, we talk about, it's, it's like, it's hard to get your head around if you were just to show up for the first time in the international security debate, but there's a lot of big threats that may in our lifetime wipe us off the face of the planet yeah. and that's pretty darn scary stuff. And so thinking at scale, being really rigorous and critical about where we spend our time and our money and how we focus our resources um, is, is a core commitment of the movement. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's been exciting to, to learn from and, be, and kind of debate with people about where to, where to focus.
2: Just one more China question, if I could, um, and and that's how did this how does this set of ideas around evidence based policymaking translate to when we look to foreign societies and foreign governments like Russia and China? Um, it it seems like on the one hand, you know, we went through this period of self doubt where it seemed like China was doing everything right, the West was doing everything wrong. Maybe that's because they have a better decision-making model. Hmm. But now in the last few years with Putin's war in Ukraine and with the dynamic zero COVID policy and the the tech crackdown in China, more and more of the zeitgeist is swinging in the other direction that it's actually these authoritarian regimes that don't have uh, candid systems of feedback or analysis uh, and are prone to strategic blunders uh, I'm just curious, as someone who studies decision making, um, what what can we make of this discourse, and of to what degree, you know, some of these authoritarian countries, uh, you know, f- fall to these problems um, as far as co- cognitive and decision making biases.
0: Yeah, it, it became it became kind of in vogue for a little while to look at Putin as this master strategist. Exactly, and, and people felt like. Gosh, if only I could be in power and have the, the you know, the flexibility of action, I could be the next Machiavelli or, you know, whatever. And uh, I, I was never very hot on that take. I'm, you know, my bets on democracy. Uh, and I see it through the lens of this scientific decision-making um, framework that we've been talking about. Good scientific process, good hypothesis generation and, and answering of those hypotheses with the best available evidence requires... Collecting data, it requires an honest and 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 competitive analytical process that allows people to 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 bring their most challenging ideas to bear on really tough questions, and be shielded from political influence, let alone political fear of not even being able to discuss these issues at all, or you know having your life threatened if you were to 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 cast doubt on um, you know the the premiers. Uh, you know, latest policy idea. Uh, It requires some transparency. It requires sharing data between offices, between organizations, and with the American public. There's a lot of great political science research about how powerful it is when the U.S. president uh, makes a commitment that commitment's going to be kind of... stuck within our democracy because people will expect it to be carried through. People will look at the data, people will look at the evidence and say, hey, listen, we're not gonna be pushed around on this. You can't just tell us to turn left then turn right. Uh, You know, people get a vote. And um, that process I think drives towards the truth. It drives towards effectiveness. It drives us towards efficiency and ultimately i think it drives us towards peace and cooperation you know i, I like I'm, I'm not i'm not like afraid of the military afraid of war but but when we're talking about these big long-term trends of are we going to be able to coexist with a place you know we're not going to shoot our way out of the china problem i think that's the reality you know so we're going to have to figure out how to coexist and uh the big mistakes that we can make along the way which i think are ever present you know like that the path is dangerous and thorny and there are snakes uh it's it's gonna need to to push us in a direction of of effective foreign policy.
4: Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to Economist.com and get your first month
3: free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing,
2: however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I think you're right that um, one of the great strengths of democracies is our openness and um, being able to prioritize truth and leverage expertise and scientific knowledge toward, uh, you know, kind of competitive answers to these questions um, but then one of the great ironies right now is that within the United States and other democracies, uh, the reputation of experts, of so-called elites, um, of the, you know, the scientists um, and others is is kind of declining, um, you know, in part due to the rise of kind of populist kind of anti-system sentiment. Um, I guess I wonder if, you know, is there a political constituency for evidence-based policymaking? Um, you know, is this something that a politician can run on and get votes on, um, or is this something that they kind of need to do behind closed doors and still present to the public this romantic vision of strong leadership, um, going with their gut, um, following, you know, um, prin- principles or beliefs that are just in, in their heart that they've, they've held for years?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't want to get out of my depth on the politics, this whole of, you know, of, of this 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 crazy, beautiful country we live in. Um, but I think that there's a political constituency for effectiveness. And I think that's the pitch, that uh, you can make whatever promises you want about how your government's going to run, but you and your party and your constituents, your ilk, are going to be held accountable for that. And I think that that's what this, this, uh, this improvement that we're talking about speaks to, is, is accountability. And, you know, listen, I'm not I'm not so hot on the experts right now either. You know, like I look across a lot of different a lot of different planes and a lot of the people that I read grow up and we're told we're the smartest and we're going to be right on these issues have have turned out not to be right on a lot of the things that matter. And that doesn't mean that we should we should, you know, like overthrow the system. It means we should learn. It means we need to find new experts. We need to ditch the old books, learn from them, update them, create new experiments, develop new fields of evidence and be better than we were yesterday. And as long as we can keep doing that, I think we have uh, a bright future ahead of us. Um, You know, the the Phil Tetlock superforecaster world talks about base rates, that uh, we're really bad as humans about kind of falling back to our base rate prediction. So like everybody over overestimates the likelihood of change um, and, uh, and kind of rare events. Uh, you know we we like this country is still generally stable experts still generally get a vast majority of things right you know things generally work are there some really scary trends happening of course but um yeah i think i think like the the death of expertise uh, expertise argument or the the anti-elite argument um has some you know has, has some truth and value in it and and like those of us who, who who are you know aspire to be experts on one issue or another should take it seriously and hold ourselves accountable and say yeah you know like I really screwed up. There's a cool like little feature in the New York Times today about like what the the, the colonists got wrong. Um, I would love to see more of that kind of throughout our policymaking and political process of people being like yep I like yeah but if you are, if you actually read the
1: the columns like half of them are like hedging three quarters of the time it's actually really embarrassing.
0: Yeah well that's you know, like like great diplomats you know I think yeah right <laughs> right but you know like the instinct. Is good, and I think we should do a lot more of that and, and deepen in that. And if it came from within the bureaucracies, all the better. You know, I think I think there's a risk of of talking about these things of, of sounding um, too optimistic. And uh, I, I'd be I'd be curious what you think I'm or we in this conversation are missing, or what the threats are. Uh, What the downsides are, or uh, uh, what the obstacle, the unforeseen, the unspoken of obstacles are, Um, I'm always curious to hear um, uh, intelligent folks like yourself kind of reflect on what we're missing here.
2: To me, the number one threat has to be politics. Um, We have a hierarchical system of government in which you know the most powerful institutions are political, and the politics of our country are deteriorating. So I, it does seem like that is going to inevitably lead to a deterioration of decision making and governance capacity. Um, and so folks, not only at FP21, but at, at any think tank who is even, you know, whether trying to reform decision making processes or even supply evidence based analysis to the government. Um, sometimes it feels like we're holding our fingers in the dike um, as the system is is crumbling around us. Um, you know, my my boss George Perkovich recently wrote that the uh, the problem is not lack of knowledge amongst political leaders, but um, rather the political incentives that drive them to ignore knowledge. Um, so I think probably Dan, you know this better than anyone. Anyone um, being in a think tank or creating a think tank, you know, there's a certain amount of wondering of um, is does this work? Um, that that's. That's my big fear, and then and then maybe the related thought would be, do the decision makers actually share your diagnosis? Um, Like, if you were to ask, you know, in two thousand three, if you were to ask President Bush about the war in Iraq, is he making evidence based policy? He would probably have said yes, right? He would probably have said, yeah, I'm I'm going based on you know, the intelligence that is being provided to me. The You know, the analysis of my experts and just my knowledge, just the the factual knowledge that the human heart longs for freedom. And, you know, so you would say, yeah, that's that's all evidence. Um, So, you know, that would be kind of just another kind of question to explore as to what extent do political and senior civil service leaders um, actually accept the idea that they're not doing evidence based policy today or what counts as evidence?
0: Yeah, I think those are good points. Jordan, what do you think? turn the mic around um
1: i just think it's going to take a while because i think people are stubborn and i think there's i think there's like i think the sports analogy is actually pretty apt um but the thing about the sports analogy is there was like there's like a forcing function right is like your team starts to lose compared Mm. to the competitors and there are so and, and like the like the field, like the, like, it's so obvious what winning and losing is. And, you know, there are seasons and there's like time to mm-hmm, reflect mm-hmm. and whatnot. And, you know, I, I just came up with 10 excuses for why you can't apply this to China. I'm sure everyone can come up with a million excuses why it doesn't apply to them. countries can come up with excuses about why it doesn't apply to, to, to them. So, um, making the case, I think like the believers are going to be into it. I, mean, I don't think the non-believers are going to go anywhere for another decade or two. Uh, and I don't think they're, they're really going to buy in. And, and there's not, and there's not, a and there's not the forcing function of why am I spending the same money, the same amount of money as this other team, but they're twice as good. Um, because that hasn't happened in like, like other policy areas, which almost feel more tractable, like, you know, uh, education policy or, uh, or healthcare, um, where your sort of data points are, you know, you have, you have data sets in the, in the hundreds of millions of, of outcomes and, um, and you can do cross national stuff very, um, in a very straightforward manner, but you're still not having, but, but, but sort of this discourse hasn't sunk into that. those um those policy arenas as well so so this feels really like really to me like the final frontier almost of um bringing evidence into policy and it's going to be and it's going to be real uphill battle for a long time because i think i think finding those wins um is finding finding like the tangible like case study wins is going to be really uh a really hard challenge and even if you do find them I, I still don't think you're going to you're going to convince a, a a percentage of the folks out there, which may end up being like a like a majority veto for a number of uh, years, if not decades. Which doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but uh, but it's tough. I mean, just just to say, though, two, two
2: things from this conversation that gave me hope that I didn't come in with. Um, one is the your point, Dan, that some of the stuff that we're describing is actually somewhat easy and cheap, um, like reforming and reformatting an action memo, or um, creating a new facilitation process for a meeting, at least at lower levels where you don't have kind of political appointees sort of running the show and unable to be herded by such a facilitator. Um, Those things don't
1: require years of study. They could potentially be implemented. But, but, but the reforming the action memo, the reason it's such a good idea is if it works, it will force everyone into this uh, mindset. But I think even if you reform the action memo and people don't buy into it, they won't do it the right way.
2: But that's the other thing from this conversation that gave me some hope is the realization that the bureaucracy actually has some political power. Right. To the extent that the problem in our system is political decision making, there actually is a sense amongst many that the experts in the country are, wor- are worth listening to. And when there's a leak, for example, that um, an intelligence assessment was ignored. I mean, look at the intense interest post the Afghan um, pullout as to what the intelligence community told the administration when and why—that's because pe- people actually really care what knowledge they had and whether they acted on it. Um, so I, I think you know, the, the, the bureaucracy is is not outside of politics. To some extent, it has a little political valence to it, uh, a little, at least a little.
0: I think there's a lot more than I think there's a lot more than a little. You know, it's not the high profile stuff that the news likes to write about it, uh, but it's it's all the million things that happen every day to advance those things behind the scenes. I think the Afghan pullout is is actually a really good example uh, where uh, it's not just a a big decision of should we stay in this country and continue this fight or or go, okay. that highly politicized, highly partisan, emotional. Okay, like, okay, we're not into that space. But once this this, once this decision is made, what tools are we using to keep track of all the American citizens in Afghanistan? How do we conduct this process in an evidence driven way? Uh, peel back the curtain and look at what the State Department, you know, how the State Department handled it. And I think you're going to be a little bit terrified at like, you know, the, the pencil and paper or the Excel spreadsheets getting messed up and things like that. Uh, that's like, okay, this is the easy stuff. You know, we've been we've been given our marching orders. Everybody wants this to succeed on both sides of the aisle. And now we've just got to execute it well using the best tools. And those tools aren't available to us because we haven't prioritized it. And there's nobody around here that, that you know, like understands how to like think about big, complicated, messy data sets and how to, on how to like geolocate information or you know, like whatever, whatever it is that needs to be done. There's like, you know, no foreign services are taught this. Foreign service officers or State Department officials are taught this. So it's, it's at every place at, at, throughout the bureaucracy. It's more fun to talk about like the big stuff, but I think a lot of the advances we're gonna see is on the day-to-day stuff, it's gonna be, start becoming more habitual and more obvious that, of, of course, we need to bring evidence here. And where do I find this evidence? You know, we're kind of starting back where we're returning back to where we began. Um, yeah, maybe I should go look at Google Scholar and see what the latest research was on this. Maybe I should call up that, that scholar and say, hey, you know, like, what do you think about this? Not just like, what do you think about China? That's often what we ask these academics. And they're like, well, I don't, I don't know. That's not what I research. Uh, but like, how do I design a more a, a better hypothesis based question here and then evaluate evidence on both sides to make sure we're coming to the best place on this particular area? and I think that there's going to be a lot of people in this country who are going to, who are going to be willing to jump in and help
1: Dan how are you how are you implementing your your evidence decision making in your you know management of your uh, small but mighty uh, how many person right now organization? we have 11 paid staff.
0: Oh, that's real. Okay. Okay. That's real. Yeah, it's real. Oh, we're, oh, oh, this is real. Oh, it's a real organization. Holy shit. (laughs) It's a real organization. Okay. Some of them are interns. We pay our interns. Um, yeah, Jordan, your question is great. And one of my favorite things in the world to talk about, like, these are, these are meta questions. This, you know, we have kind of like a rule, a rule-ish in fp 21 that we don't want to make recommendations. We don't want to proselytize about some new process that we don't use ourselves. So when we talk about hmm. managing knowledge, well, we bar- darn well better have better internal knowledge management processes at fp 21. When we talk about thinking probabilistically about decision, decision-making under complexity, we try to bring some of that to bear in our analytical and decision-making processes. Uh, and I love, love talking about internal business operations. Since COVID, I think a lot of organizations are going all virtual, we're virtual and asynchronous, largely as an organization and designing organizational processes that allow us to spend a lot of time doing deep work. We don't use email. We don't try to slack each other Hmm. all day or ping each other. Do the thing, do the analysis, do the research that you asked to do. Put it in a place where it's we're all going to see it. Don't make us all hunt for the information wherever it's going to be in the organization. Certainly, don't silo the information. You have to produce everything on like the organization's space, and we're all going to read and engage with that. And then when you come together as an organization, we're debating based upon kind of a shared understanding of the best information available, whether it's a business decision or a research decision or whatever.
1: So, so Dan, is this like a, a psychological response to spending time in the State Department and having literally zero control over anything? When it yeah, comes to this sort uh, of stuff, yeah, I have like,
0: organis- organizational trauma, it's like my yeah my my like my coping mechanism is I'm gonna like <laughs> I need to have a great organ yeah th- probably yes. Okay. Uh, I was gonna
2: say that the term that comes to mind from the tech world is eating your own dog food, meaning that if Microsoft <laughs> creates Microsoft Teams and foists it on the rest of the world, well, they actually have to use Microsoft Teams within Microsoft. They have to use it, and that's kind of yeah. a, a, the the proof is in the pudding as to whether these techniques work. That's I, right. I, I, I will say, right. like,
1: China Talk has now gone from one employee to two. Um, and when that happened, Congratulations. I, I, had to, I had to stare, I had to stare myself in the face and be like, wow, our notion is disgusting. Um <laughs> and then I spent half an hour and I cleaned it up and I just like feel so much better about the world. Cause like, it's rational. What happens when I record it? And then
0: I'm not gonna Jordan, that. that's exactly it. That's a huge emphasis that every organization needs to needs to like take up. Every so often, particularly when new people arrive, which in big organizations is like, you know, kind of constantly, you need to clean up your systems. You need to upgrade your processes. You need to like go look for the better tools. You need to ditch the old stuff. You need to like go, man, you know, organize your files. You need to learn. You need to create an evaluation process and learn what's working and ditch the old stuff. If you don't do that, you get stuck in the wrong century, which is where I think a lot of our organizations are
2: yeah, I guess the, I guess there is like a totally different approach that one could take to this stuff and and maybe I'm more of this kind of um you know somebody called it the the magpie style of you know thinking is a creative process, you read as much as you can, you kind of file it away, it slowly changes your neuronal connections, and you know ultimately some. Kind of you know useful product comes out of it. Um, and
1: I think maybe that works for some kinds of you haven't you haven't gotten into this like knowledge management shit, I, John. I have not. Um, there's there's such a dark. It, it's so deep. It, it runs so I mean, this, deep. This came, this came up in the IC. Oh, you
2: know, but it, a lot of what an analyst does every day is you know read what we call message traffic. You know, raw mm-hmm. intelligence, human signals, intelligence, and try to make sense of it. Um, and so people have tried to come up with software solutions to help people, you know, track what they've read, read it, evaluate it, process it. Um, it's pretty cumbersome, which is the case for most government software. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons really, um, that we could just dive a rabbit hole of, you know, government software processes. Um, and (laughs) Dan, maybe maybe that's, maybe that's kind of something that your, your organization could take on at some point.
0: Yeah, we've th- we've thought about that. I mean, that's that's a that's a big rabbit hole as you mentioned. Um my my starting point belief is that it's really never like you never really want to go first to the tech software solution. Mm. These are all behavioral things. Mm. You create behavioral moments in the bureaucracy that require you to go evaluate and update your existing process or you don't. And if you, you like if your organization can't learn, then your software is going to be outdated in 3 months no matter what, you know, what mm-hmm. like how, new it is. Uh, so yeah, we need to have the impulses and there's, you know, there's tons of great literature about how, like how to create, you know, organizations that can learn and adapt quickly and change. Uh, you know, none of that, none of that best practice is like adopted at the department of state. You know, I, I can't speak for Intel or, um, or DOD, but, uh, yeah, if you don't, if you don't have those impulses, if you don't have those habits, if you don't incentivize cleaning house and learning how to share, reflexively share processed and unprocessed knowledge and share and be transparent about your decisions and be transparent about how you're evaluating the efficacy of those decisions, then you're not going to do it no matter what the software tells you to do. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think it's like behavior first and then tech. Uh, but you know, we have some wild obsidian advocates in my organization. It's, it's like an obsidian versus notion, uh, fight sometimes. Let me tell you, let me tell you a little bit about it. So we're building. So like part of what FP 21 lab is doing is building like this new memo format. I'm just <laughs> going to go on and on because I obsessed with this stuff. Sorry, you guys have to listen. What obsidian does as I understand is it allows you to tag chunks of information within a document. So you don't organize at the document level. You organize okay. at the, at the block of information level. So you can That's say. Great. And then you can, cre- and you can think of your information in a networked environment where you can uh, evaluate then the interrelationships between different types of knowledge, regardless uh-huh. of which document they came from. Is this hard evidence? Is this, you know, mm. signal, signal intelligence within the China space for, you know, people who are identifying threats and you can kind of like pull up all that knowledge in an organized way. So it's, uh-huh. it's just an organizational system, but it, but it's uh, much more granular. Rather than this old hierarchical model of like dumping stuff into, into like windows folders, kind of like broke all of our brains of how we should, how we should, you know, like filing cabinets. That's just not how you store information in a modern information economy. Should I give, should I give you a little tour? Go ahead. And and while you're doing Why? that,
2: you know, you're, you're giving me PTSD back to my IC days because one of the major knowledge management problems for anyone working in the classified world is remembering where you learn something and (laughs) what level of classification it is and with what (laughs) compartmental caveats and I think people who have not done this work, would might be surprised at the kind of cognitive load that that takes up. And for me, it would really just come down to like visual memory, um, you know, like you know, something written at the secret level versus the TS compartmented level might just appear differently as a document depending on its source. And so I would kind of call to mind like what the paragraphs looked like. Was it written in all caps? Was there a watermark, you know, um, and uh, was the cover page blue or red? Exactly. Yeah. That's what keeps you out of trouble. Yeah. Dan you're you're a uh, small organization so you may not have time for this but um do, is there a part of your research or time or brain that's devoted to the study of think tanks? Um you know, I mean there's folks like Dan Dresner who've written articles and books about it. There's yes. on think tanks, there's the Think Tank Watch blog, there's, you know, lots of kind of writing and thinking about the evolution of think tanks. Even at Carnegie we have some um, internal histories that have been published about you know our founding and um kind of how the think tank uh, ecosystem has evolved over over the decades um is that something that you can devote resources to analyzing and kind of being your own version of evidence-based think tank construction
0: yeah we we did a lot of that in the early days of trying to build uh, an organization that we thought would be would benefit from what we thought worked um And yeah, I like read the Dresner stuff and the on think tank, both for, um, so there's two ways I came at that literature. One was, was like, what type of organizational design did we want, which is Mm. uh, about as hard of decision-making that I've ever had to make in my life. Uh, it's just kind of like infinite number of variables, three-dimensional, four-dimensional chess um matching resources with strategy with staff and people it's 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 kind of the biggest challenge uh you know challenges are good to be clear it's but but it's the biggest biggest challenge that we face um and for my study you know my, my dissertation study which is kind of still ongoing on um what does expertise look like and how is information make an impact in the political space so what is what are the um yeah, there's like interesting books about how science causes politics, how research mm-hmm. and how think tanks mm-hmm. cause politics. I was really into the academic uh do like this this big literature, not literature, but this like big set of writing and speculation about the dev- uh, about the bridge between um policy and practice. Or I'm sorry, this um oh, my words are failing me. The academic policymaking divide. Mhm. And so I think a lot of it fits into there as as folks kind of locate them, uh, locate themselves on that scale. Yeah. I think that stuff's super valuable and we should, uh, yeah, John, I think we talked about this a little bit before, but I I think it'd be really cool. And, you know, in the, in the funding world, funders are thinking a lot about this too, and want to support organizations that they think are going to not just, uh, replicate tried and true methods, but are going to innovate and have impact in different and new ways, given, you know, our rapidly evolving society. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be cool if there was more kind of like hard evidence in this space for us to benefit from and, and, and learn from.
2: Yeah, there's, there's definitely not enough. Um, you know, since we were talking about EA before, and one of the more interesting things that I've found is the open philanthropy case studies of philanthropy including philanthropy focused on ideas generation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they go through some interesting and evocative case studies about, um, for example, the um, kind of neoliberal intellectual movement or the law and economics movement uh, as highly successful, 20th century examples of this, um, but that also those worked because of certain conditions were present. That's right. Um, You know, like for example, in those case studies, you know, uh, vested interests that can contribute large sums of money over a long period of time to those ideas. Um, and not everyone has the luxury of that. That's right.
0: Yeah. And I think one, one has to be aware in this space of, um, the incentives that Jordan was talking about before that, uh, the, the incentives to chase funding, to subtly shift your language or your results Mm-hmm. To play either a political or a, uh, to, you know to, to placate or please a uh, a potential or current donor are real and uh, again, I think it comes back to transparency that that when you hide the ball on how you're producing analysis and how you're doing your work, it's a lot easier to 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 like allow that bias to flourish and really affect you when you're more transparent even within the organization, you know, your own staff is going to keep you accountable. People want to be working on stuff that they think is going to matter. Not just like, you know, none of us got into this for the money, (laughs) you know, like that's not it. Uh, yeah. So I think having, having conversations about, you know, we've got like a whole internal monitoring and evaluation regime that, um, people hold me accountable for, you know, we've got like all these indicators and, and, uh, it's like, Hey, what do you guys think? You know, like, is this, is this working? How, how am I doing? You know, like, Am I helping you? Is this notion stuff? Is it is it getting in your way? Is are we spending too much time with knowledge wow. management uh, and not enough time on something else? Those are these are questions we ask, um, you know, quite regularly. Not a lot
2: of organizations of your size probably are devoting resources to that kind of self analysis, Bravo.
0: Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't do it if if I wasn't you know like if if I wasn't if uh, if I wasn't blabbing about this all over the place. You know, I, it, it's much easier not to. <laughs> just to shape the political to the the political message on the flip side but um yeah we're we're trying to hold ourselves accountable to the to the uh, and drink our own kool-aid here so
1: yeah it it isn't i mean like i think the smart ones do
0: um because it's just such a force multiplier
1: especially when you're when you when you have constrained resources mm-hmm. right i mean i think i think you can make the
0: argument on the, in mm-hmm. the opposite mm-hmm. right now. it's a great point yeah that's that's the right message jordan you're right that's what i that's that's what i mean
2: Hey, let me just throw out one more thing. I know we're like way over time here, but um, you know we've been talking a lot about data and you know I think sometimes people conceptualize data as big data, AI, quantitative metrics. Um, but one thing that I took from some of FP21's research is history um, and how there really is not enough use of history or historians in the US government Um, I was actually really intrigued to learn at the Pentagon that there are a certain amount of historian billets that exist at a combatant command or um, the joint staff has a joint history office. And the people in that office, I told them, you guys have probably one of the coolest jobs (laughs) in government. Um, It it seemed to me, as far as I could tell, like they had two jobs. One was documenting current decisions for future history. But the other was being called upon to provide historical perspective on contemporary decisions. And I remember thinking to myself, if I were the chairman, if I were the secretary, I would want this person to be in every meeting, to be you know on every yeah. action memo. Just everything would start with history. Um, and yet, of course, as you might imagine, these are very, very small offices with very, very limited resources. So right. they can all be tasked very, very selectively. Um, and the historical process is a slow one. Um, so, any thoughts that you have on just um, historians and government use of history in government,
0: and uh, how we could Im- improve the the throughput or the relevance of history? Yeah, I have a lot of historians around me, and um, hmm. I can tell you why. I can tell you why uh, why those offices aren't more active is because, man, it's so annoying being surrounded by historians. They're always telling you. <laughs> <laughs> this has been tried before. You know, we already did. We already did this, sir, ma'am. You know, like this isn't gonna work. We do, You know, we've done this. Like, you know, like I, I served in Pakistan. It's uh, okay. We're gonna try this again. Yeah, let's try it again. Um, um. You know, I think I, I'm like kind of being tongue in cheek, but this. You know, this. This is the challenge. Is sometimes, sometimes it's better not to be told if you're the political leader and you're just trying to like move forward, come up with an idea that sounds yeah. nice and passes. You know, the sniff test. Uh, to have the historian in the office and be like. You know, like who studied? You know, Jordan brought up sanctions. Who studied sanctions? To be like, well, you know, you know, like let me let me show you the case studies on the past like ten times in this country we've sanctioned even this same person. Like we we sanctioned this same person over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's possible this time we're going to hit the jackpot and it's going to work. But you know, ba- base rate probability. You know, like ten tries, ten failures, probably like a low low probability of success. Um, yeah, I think I think like having history, and and you know, I should mention policymakers are like love the idea of history. When you talk about history, they're like oh yeah, I love history. When you say data, like no 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 no, no I don't trust, I don't trust that. Um, so I do mm. think that that's a really useful entry point and and kind of it can be like a gateway drug to broader evidence.
2: That's funny that they love history and hate data. In some ways, those are just two different terms for the same thing. It's the same stuff. Which is- factual knowledge about anything that's happened prior to now. Um, but I guess they have different kind of tribal connotations or different methodologies that are presumed to be behind them.
0: I think that's right. I think, I think like the method of history is, is um, more tractable for the amateur user. I also think history leaves a lot more room for interpretation. It, it's less prescriptive in its result. And many historians, I think don't, I'm, I'm not a historian, so I don't want to go out on you know, too far on this limb here, but I think that there's a difference between a social scientist making a causal, you know, putting forward a theory, testing that theory and having kind of like a simplified model of the world with some evidence behind it, where that like that little piece, that little slice controlling for everything else is supposed to inform your decision-making. That's like a a, a different and perhaps more threatening approach than saying, well, here's a long-form, deep description of exactly what happened during yep. the Berlin yep. airlift. Hey, before we move on, I just need to plug, um, I ran an evidence-based decision-making process on my favorite question I've received in a long time about the outro song for this podcast <laughs> version, and uh, we collected data, we did, the, we did really high-level research, uh, we did surveys, and uh, we came down on what, what I feel confident is, is the best possible choice. Uh, and so I just wanted to, to plug that, um, uh, at, at, at the end, this is a, this is a real treat for a song.
2: Well, Dan, I don't even know what the song is, but I'm so confident in the process that you executed that I, I'm just going to guarantee that it, it'll be the greatest outbound outro song ever.
0: It's an infallible, it's an infallible process and it's not going to be the greatest song ever. That's not the goal, but it's going to be the right song for this <laughs> challenge.
2: Ends, ways and
1: means aligned. All right. Dan, can't wait to play your
0: song. Have a great day. Yeah. Hey, it's been (laughs) a joy chatting with you guys. Really appreciate this and would love to, love to keep the conversation going. It's, it's um, yeah. You know, it's like, let's make some better foreign policy. This country needs it.
1: We don't just passively perceive the world. We actively generate it. So perception, figuring out what's there has to be a process of informed guesswork in which the brain combines these sensory signals with its prior expectations or beliefs about the way the world is, the world we experience comes as much, if not more, from the inside out as from the outside in.
3: Let me show you how to be a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than a man Let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo-controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman. Is it because of my look? Or the fact that I talk like I'm mad for books Either way, in the ecosystem of rap, I'm the platypus So my patron saint on stage is Reverend Bays. Just watch me update the predictions in everyone's brains Teaching a crowd about probabilistical statistical science For instance, if the president's approving degenerate liar Remember your priors, and be skeptical whenever he's testifying Is it always inaccurate? No, but you discount outliers Especially when he's testifying about non-citizens Muslims, African Americans, and other victims of dog whistling, bigoted, unconscious bias, unreliable information. The antidote is to learn how to think like a Bayesian. So let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information. In. And if you're thinking, I'll be less than a million Show you how to be a good baby. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. those predictions that your brain is making Let's get them on a solid foundation It was 2009 and I was opening for Nas Predicted they would love us, hypothesis was wrong Crowd presented evidence booing while I rhymed They'd rather hear the message or New York State of mind was it my flow no i hardly lacked ability rapping with agility check the probability not likely to give up under fierce choleric scrutiny refused to stop the show though their peer review was news to me confusing me like the anti-science right i was dripping like the ice caps yes it was not my night But I kept it in cause the late I'm in is solid. Anticipate results with my a priori knowledge. So never let a hater shower you with data that tells you you should quit. Drop the mic and be like, later two more songs then like OJ I was out saw Nas backstage and think then grabbed my bag and then I bounced let me show you how to be a good baby change your predictions after taking information and if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing let's adjust those expectations let me show you how to be a good baby change after taking fresh dating, those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid
4: foundation. felt like I was still a baby when I first learned to be a Bayesian. I would find myself within a constant state of frustration before the day begins. On Facebook, my sample consisted of people I called my friends, who self aggrandized and post constantly in with the latest trends. Using inconclusive evidence was assess the probability that people would never examine what is true and accept the lie willingly. Really. From my observation, came a question we really so naive or is there a correlation between make-believe and what is on the screen because it seems that we have forgotten this the truth and politics are opposites humans are intelligent and that's the layup of the hypothesis so i would conduct an experiment by laying down a simple rap and wondering what every one of the people who heard this line called it fact even if it were verifiable supportable sustainable considering the source would anyone ask how the info was attainable so i analyzed my data the context in which i framed it in 50% would agree with me taking the info i to them. Maybe if I was the platinum pop star rocking football stadiums And not a little known rap artist whose status strictly me subterranean I can conclude they place a higher value on the power of my cranium But minds are forever changing them And that, my friends, is Bayesian So let me show you how to be a good Bayesian
3: Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations Let me show you how to be a
4: good Bayesian Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.